Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show... I speak to Max Tegmark of MIT about the future of artificial intelligence. If we can find a way of amplifying our own intelligence with machine intelligence, that's an incredible opportunity, really, to uh, be empowered as a species. And how the whiskers of seals are helping to create new underwater sensors. It would mean you've got a sensor that can be used to track and follow and detect all sorts of underwater things, from shoals of fish to whales to submarines. But first, this week NASA is launching its latest space exploration mission, the Parker Solar Probe. The robotic craft will fly closer to the sun than any man-made object has ever been before, beaming back invaluable new data on the star's properties. It's an attempt to answer one of the greatest unanswered questions in astrophysics, the coronal heating problem. And to understand that and what it is and how the probe could help solve it, I'm joined on the phone by Dr. Nicola Fox of the John Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, and she's the project scientist for the Parker Solar Probe. Hello, Dr. Fox. Hello. Dr. Fox, my first question is, what is the coronal heating problem? So the the corona is the hazy atmosphere that you see surrounding the sun during a total solar eclipse. And it's very beautiful, but it's also very mysterious. The material that's in that corona is about 300 times hotter than the surface of the sun, which doesn't really make sense. When you move away from a hot object, you usually get colder. Whereas in the sun's atmosphere, as you move away, it gets hotter. And so we know that there is something happening in this region of the corona that is causing this sudden intense heating of the material there. So what is the probe going to do? The Parker Solar Probe will travel through the sun's corona, about seven times closer than anything has been before, right into this region where we see the maximum heating and indeed also the acceleration of this material. A lot of people are familiar with coronal mass ejections, big solar storms, flares, But what a lot of people don't realize is that the sun's atmosphere is continually streaming away from the star. It is heated and accelerated in this region of the corona. And so Parker Solar Probe will go up and visit and fly through this region 24 times, taking the measurements we need to be able to figure out what is causing this heating and acceleration. So how is it so possible to get close to the sun? Shouldn't that disturb all the instruments? Parker Solar Probe has a heat shield that flies in front of the spacecraft. So it's held on by a titanium structure that holds this 2.3 roughly circular heat shield that sits out in front and it causes a shadow or a, you know, a shaded area in a sort of cone shape. And the spacecraft body actually sits in this shadow caused by the heat shield. Most of the instruments sit on the main body of the spacecraft. And so the front side of the heat shield 
gets to about 1400 degrees Celsius, but the main body of the spacecraft where the instruments are sitting, that is only at about 30 degrees centigrade. So that's a pretty typical operating temperature for most of these instruments. We do have a couple that are bravely out in the solar atmosphere and they sort of peep around the heat shield. And those obviously had to go through a lot of testing and a lot of extra development. We had to come up with materials that would be able to withstand this incredible heat. But also um, the orbit of the Parker Solar Probe is elliptical. So it looks like the petals of a flower. It goes very close to the sun on one side and then out around the orbit of Venus on the other. And we do this 24 times. And so we actually go very hot and then very cold 24 times during our mission. And coming up with uh, materials that can withstand those big temperature swings was a big challenge. And it's why we've had to wait so long to fly the mission. And how long will it take the mission all in? The whole mission is seven years in duration to do these 24 orbits. About eight weeks after we launch, we will encounter the planet Venus for the first time, and we will do a gravity assist maneuver there to kind of focus our orbit in towards the sun. And then just six weeks after that, we will be in the sun's corona for the first time. And so uh, not too long at all, we'll have our first data from our coronal encounter. That sounds so fantastic. Now, I just have to ask, though, what do you expect to find? Are there any hypotheses of why the corona is just so hot? There are several hypotheses. In fact, our mission is named for Dr. Jean Parker, who in 1958 published a paper that really predicted that this coronal atmosphere would be continually accelerated. And it turned out he was correct. He also has a theory himself for why the corona is heated, and there are several competing theories. And so the measurements that we're going to take are very tailored to looking for the signatures of these different theories to see which one of them is correct. It's a little bit like forensic science. We know what we're going to look for, and we're sort of going to take the fingerprints and then analyze the results we get and to be able to see which theory they better fit with. So basically, CSI, the sun. That's right. (laughs) Dr. Fox, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Next up, I'm joined in the studio by the physicist, cosmologist, and author Max Tegmark. Max is a professor at MIT and a co-founder of the Future of Life Institute. Last year, he published a book, Life 3.0, and in it he discusses artificial intelligence and its impact on the future of life on Earth and beyond. Max, welcome to Babbage. So you've spent much of your work looking at the safety of artificial intelligence systems. What lessons do you draw that you can put into practice today? I think the threat of nuclear weapons, the threat from artificial intelligence as it gets more powerful, are both just examples of one and the same thing. We humans are very curious species, right? So we figure out ever more about science. We use this understanding to... um, build technology that gives us ever more power to affect our world. I'm optimistic that we can create a really inspiring high-tech future if we win the race between this growing power of our tech and the growing wisdom with which we manage it. But that's going to require a, a change of strategy because when the tech wasn't very powerful, like, well, like when we invented fire and screwed up a bunch of times, it was okay to invent the fire extinguisher later. But we don't want to have an accidental nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia and then be like, oopsie, let's learn from our mistakes. When the tech is sufficiently powerful, then it's much better to plan ahead and get things right the first time because that might be the only time we'll get. And that's exactly 
the situation we're facing now as we approach superhuman artificial intelligence. So after World War II, the technology for nuclear weaponry was really big, heavy, expensive, and hard to pull off. And so you needed an institution like the state to actually husband it. And then if you wanted to control it, you could create institutions because you knew who the relevant actors were. But artificial intelligence doesn't look like those characteristics of technology. It's decentralized. It's inexpensive. It can be done on a computer or spinning up some Amazon web service, cloud service uh, compute. And so how can you meaningfully regulate artificial intelligence? Exactly. It's very, it's small, it's cheap, it's ubiquitous, much, much tougher. Some of my colleagues take that to mean it's impossible to regulate and we should just give up. And in particular, that anything, that it's just going to be militarized and we should just accept that that's our future. I'm more optimistic than that because we have the example of biology. It's also very cheap these days to build a biological weapon. You can download pathogens on the internet and cheap technology. Yet there, because the biologists worked so hard to draw a line in the sand and say, these are okay uses of biology for curing diseases and helping people, bioweapons, uh-uh, that's a disgusting misuse. Because they did that, we got a ban on biological weapons, and it's really the stigma more than anything else which has kept biology being a real force for good. And I, I'm optimistic that we can do the same thing with AI because there is just so much amazing upside with AI. We can use it to figure out how to cure diseases, how to produce an enormous amount of wealth that can make everybody better off and so on. If we can, again, draw a line in the sand and say there are just certain abuses we're just not going to do, we see a lot of uh, voluntary stuff already from AI researchers of this kind. And AI researchers have, it's pretty much all conferences nowadays, also workshops on AI safety and so on. So there's a real will to make AI follow in the inspirational lead of bio. The point of liberalism in the, in the 19th century was a recognition that humans are fallible. And so we just can't rely on goodwill. We need to build the institutional framework for them to actually do the right thing and not do the wrong thing. What kind of institutional safeguards, sort of mechanistic safeguards might be appropriate? Because I do feel that if you rely simply on the good nature of individuals, someday someone's going to do something wrong. Oh, absolutely. We, we absolutely need institutional safeguards. We have. Whenever we've developed more powerful technology, we will tend to eventually develop an institution that manages it a bit. You can't just go out into the nearest grocery store and buy a machine gun or plastic explosives. They won't sell that to you. And if you do really bad things with technology you have, you'll spend some time in jail as a result. That's institutional safeguards. I think um, for AI, in the very short term, first we need to prevent the militarization through an international treaty. We also need some institutional safeguards to just make sure that the amazing wealth, you know, the growing economic pie that this will produce ends up making everybody better off. I was just talking to uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos a couple months ago at this event, and they strike me as very idealistic people, and I don't in any way envy them having a life of luxury, but it struck me that they own more together than the poorest half of the U.S. population, more than 160 million people. And I think if the politicians are asleep at the wheel, we're going to see much more spectacular growth in uh, income inequality in the future with AI. But, I mean, just simply because 
when more of the value gets produced by technology, it's a no-brainer that more of the revenue is going to go there, right? Facebook is worth 12 times more than Ford, even though they have eight times fewer employees. So I think this is another institutional thing we should really, well, we should have, we need some bold ambition just to think about how can we make sure that we reverse this current trend of growing income inequality and, may, and let everybody feel that AI is a force of good for us, us all. Do you think that humans are up to the task of actually rearranging how we live in a world of AI without a calamity to force our minds to do it? You know, there are two ways we can learn from mistakes. We can learn from other people's mistakes or our own mistakes. You know, and I would very much prefer if we can get it right this time without having to go through some horrible calamity, simply by seeing the writing on the wall. That's why I wrote this book. I think it's very clear that um, AI provides a fantastic opportunity to create a society that's just so much better for everybody. This is not a zero-sum game. Technology can unlock our potential to just produce so much more for everybody. If we can really uh, get people fired up about it, this positive vision, that it will engender, I hope, the, the sort of collaboration we need. I've got one final question for you. What can humans do that machines can't ever? I think nothing. Many of my colleagues disagree because they think that intelligence is something mysterious that can only exist in biological organisms. But with a background in physics, of course, it's, intelligence is very much about information processing. I'm a blob of electrons and other elementary particles moving around in a way that processes information, just as my smartphone and my, my computer. And it's the same kind of electrons. It's just that when we do it in machines, the intelligence will not be limited by the size of their mother's birth canal and other things like this. So I think it would be naive to think that uh, we are the most intelligent beings that there can be. But that said, if we can find a way of amplifying our own intelligence with machine intelligence, that's an incredible opportunity, really, to uh, be empowered as a species and do all these things that we weren't able to figure out by ourselves. Any role for spirituality, the soul, higher purpose? Oh, I'm all about higher purpose. I mean, I feel... Well, you are in a secular sense. How about in a more spiritual sense? Everyone can have their own definition of, of what they mean by spiritual and what fills them with awe and so on. But I, I, I'm just speaking personally the way I feel. You know, I, I feel a great sense of, of awe when I think about how much greater our potential is than we thought it was. Here we are on this little spinning ball in space, and we've discovered that we have the potential for life to flourish, not just for the next election cycle, but for billions of years. And not just here, but throughout much of this amazing cosmos. And I think if that happens, it's very much going to come down to what we do on our little planet now in our lifetime. So yeah, I, I think um, that is, a, to me, a very awe-inspiring thought, and meaning that we, are, we can be part of something so much greater. We can be part of helping life flourish throughout the cosmos. And I, I also feel very strongly that we shouldn't be looking for our universe to give meaning to us. It's us who give meaning to our universe because we are conscious entities. It's because we experience things that our universe is beautiful, has hope in it, and all these other spiritual traits, right? So if we can help create more positive experiences in the future, that to me is a very inspiring goal. Max, thank you very much. Thank you. So what are your thoughts on the future of AI or on the Parker Solar Probe? 
let us know in an email and send them to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Now, regular listeners of the Babbage podcast will know that we occasionally give away a book on the show. Now, sadly, just one book. However, we want you to earn it. So we ask a question and we choose among the answers. Since we just interviewed Max Tegmark about artificial intelligence, the question is this. If AI created its own religion, what would it look like and what would it be called? Please send your answers to radio at economist.com. And the book we're giving away this week is somewhat atypical. It's not a science and technology book specifically, but a business book. And it's called The High Growth Handbook by Ilad Gill. Now, Gill himself is a scientist and the founder of many startups in Silicon Valley. And the book is all about how to manage a high growth technology startup. Finally, to the depths of the oceans. Whereas some animals have developed a sort of sonar to enhance navigation, seals have been found to be using their whiskers instead to track prey and to navigate the dark waters. Understanding just how this is done has been the subject of a lot of research, and now scientists are beginning to use the research to develop novel underwater sensors. I'm joined on the line by David Hambling, who's been writing about this for this week's Economist. Hello, David. Hi there. So, David, first, how is it that the seals use their whiskers? Well, for a long time, it was quite mysterious. But it was clear from the fact that you can have a seal with a blindfold and it can follow a fish, or you can put earmuffs on it and can follow a fish. But if you cover its whiskers, it won't play at all. So clearly it was the whiskers that were doing it. And researchers have found that a fish actually leaves a trail behind it in the water, which is technically known as a Carmen Vortex Street. And it's this whole series of little whirlpools which are left behind where the fish goes. And the seals are actually capable of following those, sensing them with their whiskers. Uh, And after a great deal of work, they found out that it's the shape of the whisker seals that makes them so incredibly sensitive so they can pick up these tiny, tiny motions in the water. They've actually replicated those with artificial whiskers, and they're now using that design to create an artificial version of whiskers to create an underwater sensor which will be able to do the same thing, and it'll be able to detect objects moving in the water. And so where if you couldn't see the object, you'd now be able to sense the object. Exactly. So it would mean you've got a sensor that can be used to track and follow and detect all sorts of underwater things from shoals of fish to whales to submarines. And who is actually using this technique? The current research is being carried out by a team at MIT with some technical assistance from the Singapore University of Technology. And I can see military uses for this. What about non-military uses? Tell me something nice to warm my heart. Well, they give examples of if you've got a spillage of oil or anything else in the water that you want to track, a number of small underwater robots with this type of whisker sensor would be able to track it, see where it's moving and follow it with great precision so you can then clear the thing up before it spreads too far. That's great. And it's a really interesting example of how we're learning more things about nature and other animals that we can bring into our own technology. Exactly that, biomimicry. David, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. And if you enjoy our journalism, consider taking out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. And in London, 
I'm Kenneth Kukier, and this is the same Babbage podcast show you've been listening to for years, The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.